Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Hey there. Thank you for taking part of your day to listen in. I've got a fun episode for you today. So exciting, in fact. Uh, you'll hear me jump into questions before I even said hello to my guest, so I apologize for that. <laughs> Speaking of thinking ahead, it's planning season for most of you. As a podcast listener, you know how engaging audio content can be. It's also the easiest content you'll ever create with huge potential for repurposing. And it goes beyond the interview format. So consider a narrative format with a handful of subject matter experts going deep on a topic over a series of episodes. If that sounds like something you want to learn more about, email me, chris at lifesciencemarketingradio.com, and we can chat about it. Now, let's jump into my interview with Patricia Malone. Patricia Malone is the chief creative officer for the Fresh Blood Group, and today we're talking about bringing strategy and creative together. So previously on this podcast, uh, Bob Finkel, who you work with, talked about brand strategy and building a lexicon so that everyone in a new company speaking the same way. So your process for making that happen typically starts with a workshop. What does that look like? Yeah, well, it's great to be here, Chris. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yes, and welcome. <laughs> yeah, our process it does it does start with a workshop. Um, it's brand foundation workshop, and we most most of the time really try to get the key stakeholders within the company to participate. There's two really important reasons to start with not only brand foundation but a brand foundation workshop. One is you know, you spend a day or two days, uh, depending on the scope of what we're trying to accomplish, exploring a variety of exercises that provide us with critical insights outside of this sort of everyday way that the company talks about the brand or the product or the service. Um, it stretches the minds of the internal stakeholders in a very creative way outside their comfort zone. And it almost always, and this is the goal of it, uncovers an aha kind of moment, a gem of an insight that leads to or informs an aspirational positioning. The second reason for a workshop environment is by including the key stakeholders in the foundational meeting, it really helps drive internal alignment and a sense of shared voice. Everyone feels like they have had played a part in creating their own brand. So no one person is making a decision. Um, no one's having to digest something that they don't necessarily believe in and everyone's engaged and integral to the process and the output. So we start the workshop, it's, um, it's, it's a full day or sometimes two days like I was saying, with a, a really strategic inventory of the brand. Uh, we really look at what the company believes about their brand. I'm going to call it a brand. It's a product, a service, and sometimes it's a corporate brand. Um, but what the company believes about themselves and their brand, what they feel the customer perception is, even if it's a, a new device or new um, molecule they're introducing, there's a lot of research that they do along the way and sort of get an idea of customer perception. And then we very thoroughly look at the competitive landscape. 
So with the workshop, we have a range of exercises that really help us synthesize the brand um, as a product, a company, what's the brand like as a person, and maybe as a symbol. And it's really important to look at the brand benefits from a functional standpoint, from data, um, or whatever messaging, clinical messaging there is, and an emotional standpoint. How, how is the brand going to express itself? So the goal of, of the workshop is to kind of take all of what we learn and explore together and identify what we call a core value, sort of that singular idea that the brand can own and stand for. And then we execute on that. And then we, once executing on that, then we monitor it and gather metrics to measure um, our key performance indicators. So that's, that's sort of not our secret sauce of our, our workshop, but really what goes into it and what we explore throughout the time that we're all together. I, I love a few things what you said in there about aspirational positioning and what does the company believe about themselves. And of course, having everybody be part of that certainly avoids you know the hard sell afterwards about this is who we are and not having people at least understand why that is instead of that's right you know coming along for the whole ride right yes very important and doesn't always happen it's yeah, very important I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i think it's a great way to do that why um why is this not the aspirational thing, not just a fluffy feel-good exercise. And and that's a great question because that's often uh, what what we get when we sort of present that that's what we want to do. Um, but because we Fresh Blood often works with uh, clinical stage companies, many times we we're working with the C-suite and not necessarily a brand or product marketing teams. So these C-suite people, you know, are busy and they're used to speaking with investors. Um, so the value of these exercises and the, what we're sort of suggesting from an aspirational positioning, it's, it's really kind of intangible to them. So, but it is, as we were just saying, such a critical part of the process and the future of what these companies are building. Um, many, many brand books will tell you to build the brand before the business plan. I mean, to really understand what you're, quote, branding. Almost like an architect understands the foundations, the most impart, important part of what they're designing. The same is true of brands. Um, so having a well thought out foundation as your prior podcast with Bob, you know, includes lexicon work for this narrative consistency. It really does lead to a strong positioning that can withstand uh, the attacks of strong competitors. And it really leads to, and especially if you're in a room with scientists or people who actually developed some of these uh, molecules or um, things that you're bringing to market, sometimes these differentiating sort of epiphanies of insights come out. And, and those are the foundations of this aspirational component, which is so critical uh, to brand motion and brand progress. So it's a really interesting brand foundation workshop when you actually do get the C-suite or scientists in the room to really explore with you. Because from the brand positioning and messaging and lexicon exploration, that's when we truly can develop the brand narrative. So in a life science startup, you know, there's often 
different people presenting at different times from the CEO to the CFO or maybe a lead scientist. And without a, the boundaries of a brand narrative, there's a danger that um, each time someone describes the brand, they're going to describe it differently than someone else in the same company. They might use different words, different key points, different messages, and not really flow through the story in the same way. So that inconsistency can lead to dilution and confusion about the brand and its purpose. So consistency of narrative we feel is one of the main tenets of branded communications. And the workshop enables the team to what we kind of classify as define and align. So it's, it's really far from fluff and it serves to really support our client teams, large and small, to uh, challenge assumptions, you know, examine their current beliefs and perceptions like I was talking about earlier, and really separate fact from fantasy and sort of key principles from dogma. So it's a day that leads to um, a really powerful inform information and an ultimate analysis. So we can really create an authentic, differentiating and ownable foundational footprint for the brand. Yeah. Is it fair to say, I mean, we haven't talked about positioning on this podcast probably for four years. Um, that positioning is kind of the foundation of strategy, right? That's right. And everyone in a company that's gotten to this point, scientists, executives, whatever, they each probably have their own vision of what, let's call it a molecule, what this thing can do. But what they may not have thought of to the extent that you probably help them with is for who specifically or any other aspect of it. But thinking about uh, all the people for whom maybe there is a competitor there is better. And then these are the people, our audience, potential customers for whom ours is the best. And this is why. And so narrowing down that, oh, our great molecule can do all this stuff, but it will sell best if we talk about it like this. Right. So Talk about what a strong positioning statement looks like and how you get to that in a little more detail. So there's the classic framework that, um, that I'll talk about that we all sort of and, and companies rely on. But what, um, and it's usually kind of robust and full of different things, but it really has to contain a singular idea um, that you can really connect with. So as, as humans, you know, we actually are always positioning all the time. You know, like if you forget an anniversary, you start to automatically kind of position in your mind how you're going to explain that one away. So you're kind of positioning <laughs> yourself, you know, or, you know, people, people inherently position. Um, so it's, it's, that's sort of the beginning of really understanding and but many, many believe that a strong positioning is defined as how you make people think about your brand. But a strong positioning to me and, you know, to so many is really how you want others to think, but more importantly, how you want them to feel. And that's sometimes where the aspirational component is critically important and the emotional component, because you want brands to make you feel a certain way. So there's a famous line that I use quite a bit from Walter Landor, who was the founder of Landor Design, who said, products are made in a factory, brands are created in the mind. 
So to create a strong positioning, you really have to define the space you want to own in the hearts and minds of your customers. So it's not just this molecule or this device does this and this is a great thing. What does that mean to what insight do you have where you can really connect what that means to your target audience? So a classic positioning framework to what you were just saying, Chris, um, does have a target audience, but often within a given target audience, it's really critical to zoom in on specifically what segment of that target are you wanting to reach. So for example, if you're targeting neurologists, is it just every neurologist or is it progressive neurologists willing to be early adopters and lead the way? Is it, um, a different type of neurologist who maybe you know is looking for for a different kind of message is a different insight about that so you have to sort of segment the audience and you need to define the demographic and psychographic you know look at the current attitudes and usages and rational and emotional needs so it's not just we're targeting a general lump of people but you really want to drill down to understand and more and more tools today are allowing us to do that then there's the competitive framework, like I was talking about earlier, what's the competitive landscape and, and truly how are we different? A lot of uh, agencies and companies do blue ocean work where they really look for that uncontested space that they can own. And then what is that single focus benefit? That's the, what is that space we can own? And then critical to that is the credible and believable reason why, the so that. And then we also, in a positioning statement, often um, build in a brand character, like the tone and personality of the brand, which that also comes from the brand foundation work. So anyone can fill in a positioning framework, but truly it's the creative strategist who can analyze everything we've just talked about and not just fill it in from a sort of superficial high level way, but really synthesize and analyze what we've learned, what we know, what we've explored, what we've researched um, to create a positioning that really lays the critical foundation to gain traction and sustain. So every word in a positioning counts and the takeaway needs to be very singular and focused. So you have a lot of things in that competitive framework, but it really comes down to, as I was talking about a little bit earlier, that core value what can we own? So you can't remember, I always look at it, you can't remember each and every dish in a full and cluttered kitchen sink, but you can remember a singular pot that needs washing. So, you know, a lot of people look at it that way because sometimes positionings are filled with everything and they are kitchen sink positionings. And the goal is to get it focused and singular and sort of dynamic in, in how it's written. And that propels creative teams to then bring it to life. Yeah. So there are a lot of people, based on feedback, I just know that there are a lot of people who are scientists or specialists in some way who come to this podcast and they're new to marketing. So I just want to point out Blue Ocean Strategy. That's a book people should probably take a look at that describes what you talk about. Yeah. So um, the idea, as you said there, is what space can we own? Where is it that um, we can talk about something that no one else is? And then um, I want to ask about the character part of this because in the sciences, it seems as if there's a narrow set of attributes for that character. So how do you handle that challenge? I mean, it, at least our perception is 
serious, data-driven, et cetera. And how do you um, put different characters on different brands that allow them to be differentiated without all being boring? Without just looking like a, a, a data sheet, you mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And that depends on, again, the brand foundation work and the tone and personality. And, and some companies are more willing to go out there in a, in a different way than just serious and scientific because they are life science. Or um, even oncology companies, you know, it's not just all about stock photography and happy people. So when you, when you there's a couple ways to look at the character of the brand and the creative that you execute. And we often explore what we call loss framing directions, which are a little bit more about the unmet need and the problem to create a sense of urgency that the brand can solve. Or there's gain framing where it's a little more positive and it's sort of more benefit oriented and outcome oriented. So you kind of explore um, the range of how you can approach that singular core value that you've identified and the, the singular focus of the positioning and how you bring that to life in, in a variety of different ways. And sometimes it has to be clinical um, or sometimes companies will allow you to take a sort of whimsical approach or a, and you just kind of experiment. And that's the beauty of concepting and myself, what creatives love is creating this range, all relevant and all on strategy, but exploring different characters um, and then What's really great is sometimes when companies take them into market research and you actually show them to the target audience and see what resonates with them because it doesn't always have to be serious in science just because it's data-driven or a molecule. There's the impact and the outcome of what they're doing and why they're doing it on the people they're doing it for. So sometimes it's great to explore what that really means, that feeling component versus just this is this is differentiating because we have this certain kind of science but that being said sometimes there is just a piece of the science that's completely ownable and they can uh, really make hay of that and i think a great example of that is cialis actually when they were up against viagra you know viagra was such a, a goliath and cialis was coming out and they had the one data point that you didn't have to plan, you know, it lasted longer. So you could be more spontaneous. And that led to a great uh, creative campaign of the lawnmower half half through the lawn because they they could be spontaneous. They didn't have to plan when to take their, their pill. So it was a really great branding example of data turned into a real emotional benefit. Yeah, that's a great example. And this is a little tangential, but I just came across a post on LinkedIn yesterday and someone was asking, you know, can you use humor um, in scientific copywriting, for example? And I've seen many great examples of humorous tactical efforts that I know worked really well. But overall, it's rare that you see a brand that's entirely humorous. And I, and I realize that's probably one or two steps beyond whimsical. But when you describe what I really like, what you described is that range from whimsical or positive down to negative. How are we motivating these people about loss or gain? Then you can kind of see like, oh, we can be like the positive coach or we can wag a finger and say, 
you know what? You really should get that taken care of. <laughs> right, right. If you don't do this, this will happen. Right. So um, there, that helps describe a range of thinking that I think will open people's minds. Um, small companies versus large ones. I mean, small companies may not have budgets and so on, but they do have advantages over larger ones. Talk about that for a little bit. Um, I mean, from the client side, of, yeah. yeah, in terms of positioning, you know, what, a small company coming into a market where there might be big competitors, there can be advantages. Yes. Right? Um, just really simply to me, small companies move faster. Their speed, they're agile, um, they pivot faster, decisions are made more efficiently, alignment comes quicker um, because there's a need to speed uh, towards commercialization or there's, you know, there's just a smaller team to get things done because the larger a company and we've all worked with the large companies, you know, there's more layers and decision makers and a little bit more bureaucracy. So what what's different, I think, in San Francisco where, where Fresh Blood is, are, you know, there's such a number of preclinical sort of entrepreneurial biotech companies who are looking for a partner who can really match their agility and their nimbleness and the need for greater efficiencies. Because there's a lot less appetite with small companies for bloated teams and slow moving processes. So I think um, just to talk about Fresh Blood for a second, I think that that's why we established the hybrid consultancy slash advertising agency, because um, it's an excellent fit for these companies looking for thing, strong thinking, whether on the strategic side or the creative side, to be executed with with agility, so you can sort of uh, step back, refresh quickly, and go back um, to be more relevant. Right, and small companies, I think, have an advantage in the clarity of their positioning because they don't have other people in their company to say, "Well, if you say that, that hurts this part." Right. They, they, right. A bigger right. company has to say, "Well, we kind of do all these things, and at the highest level." we make the world a better place, which is nice. That's right. But <laughs> it's hard to sell. And it's just harder to get there. And you can definitely get there. And sometimes you work with two large companies who have formed a partnership to commercialize a brand. And that's even more, you know, layers. So it's it's just uh, small companies do have an advantage. Um, they don't always have the infrastructure, which is sometimes difficult for them. And that's where agencies can just sort of slide in and be that marketing partner or almost that brand manager with them um, until until they grow more. But there's definitely speed and agility. So let's talk about um, developing creative. So we've really kind of nailed the strategy part here. And now, and I know your specialty is the creative. What's the process for you when you're developing creative now that you've laid down that brand strategy? What does that look like? Yeah. Um, well, first, you from the positioning, you develop the creative brief, which is the marching orders for creative teams, you know, to bring that singular focus positioning to life and put a face on it. Um, so <clears throat> the positioning and, you know, all the parts we talked about are sort of the iceberg, You part of the iceberg you don't see. And then the visible communication has to be as strong is all the work that went into it to really keep keep it keep that strategic positioning moving and, and communicate it. So the process, 
it's hard because every creative has a different process. Um, people differ. I, I guess I should say people differ from where the actual idea comes from. Um, but some of the processes to get there, I guess many have the same characteristics because I think I strongly feel that creativity is sort of like a muscle that needs constant stretching and you can't stretching. You can't just sit in front of your computer and take the creative brief and start to create. So you kind of team up, you um, brainstorm together, either copywriter and art director or sometimes teams. But I think the creative process is one of freedom. And of course, in healthcare, there's constraints and the challenge is to be creative within confines of the FDA or the company's med legal, which makes to me creating even more interesting in many ways. But for me and some of the teams I've led and worked with over the years, the process to get there um, has a couple of key things in my mind. First, I think you can't self-edit. The, the longer you're in this kind of business, the easier it is to self-edit because you've been through so many med legal reviews and so many FDA that you kind of already know what might not fly, but you have to cross out that self-editing <laughs> gene. And, and go back and be curious and collaborate and create an environment where people feel comfortable playing, like throwing out any idea, any idea. Even if you know it might not get through, it might spark something else. Um, I think that's super important to, to have that safety and freedom to create. And then to find inspiration, the process of getting out of the office you know, socialize, go run, hike, walk, but look around the world, how others communicate outside of our industry um, and just open your eyes and again, be curious to um, other creative ways of communicating similar things or, or just ways that you have noticed and think are, are really, really fascinating. And then to listen. So we have a lot of brainstorming meetings or if you're working with a partner to listen what others are throwing out there because sometimes although that idea, you don't know what that idea is, but there's a spark in there and ways to build upon it. Sort of like that greenhouse effect that companies use. It's like yes and. You know, to let ideas breathe and grow a little bit. Capture them all. Don't start editing right away and don't shut them down or suffocate them. Um, and whatever process you use or wherever your idea I think it's just the passion and this is that's the fun part once the strategy is set and the creative brief has been written and you you get to go and put a face on it that's a very exciting thing to think differently and potentially change behavior in a positive way so the ability to me to create a campaign that touches people and resonates with them and maybe makes an iota of difference is an amazing feeling, no matter what the brand. It doesn't have to be a huge consumer brand or socially responsible brand, but it's all about reaching and connecting with people. And if your campaign can do that, I think that's, that's, that's just why I'm doing it, <laughs> honestly. Yeah, and, and you did, honestly, you made it sound fun. Um, I especially like the no self-editing, um, as you say, the the constraints make it more interesting. I mean, rock and roll is three chords and the truth, right? <laughs> right? That's right. And, and that that idea of creating a spark, like, okay, I know this idea isn't gonna make it in the long run, but let's probe around this thing and see what comes out of it. 
and what we can make it in the long run. I also am a huge fan of people have been paying attention of long-term thinking and not short-term. So um, the idea that you could spark something and figure out a way in the long run to make it work and make it be acceptable to the FDA. And, and then, yeah, the whole thing that just sounds fun and it's challenging. And It is. And, I mean, covering the walls is fun. And when you have a partner um, – that does that with you or a team. It's just a super fun way to approach the challenge. And, you know, maybe you all go for a run, it, you know, you look at graffiti, there's just so many things you can do to find a spark. And, and I think that's a really fun process. Yeah. And I imagine, I mean, anybody listening to this podcast, I mean, that's why we're in marketing, right? If you were a scientist and you're in marketing now, I mean, you're going, oh, wow, I'm here because this is the kind of thing I like, I hope. So that's right. Um, let's wrap up uh, real quickly with um, how creative embodies the strategy. What ties that all together? Well, I, uh, it's the creative extension of the strategy. Like I was just saying, it has to it has to embody the strategy and maintain the relevance that the strategy has and communicate that insight. So it's it's sort of the blueprint, the visible design of the blueprint, the structure of the building that's built from the blueprint. So um, you know, a great idea isn't useful if it's not on the agreed upon strategy. So it's really the creative brief is the lens through which all ideas are measured and the strategy is built upon critical human insights. So as creatives, we need to bring those to life and, th and that's where I was saying this gain framing approach or loss framing approach or however you can tap into that, that aha insight that's been uncovered through the process and connect. Um, then you've executed on the strategy. So it's, it is an exploration, but everything has to come back. And, you know, you may, I love working with creative teams because I love to see how they think. And I may not like an idea, but if it's on strategy, then, then in, who am I in a sense? Because it's a very subjective thing, creative. So the only guiding thing we have is the creative brief. And, you know, as long as you've sort of done your work on tone and personality and it really reflects the creative brief and brings it to life in an innovative way, then I think that's how it embodies the strategy. I like that. I mean, that, that's, um, that brings it right back to sort of science and data. Like you could, you could follow some creative path that took you way off and everybody says, oh, that's really cool. But then, as you said, you measure it through the lens of the brief. And if it hits all those things, then that's the thing. That, that's right. That's where we need to be. Like, so. you know, the Cialis example, again, I go back to because we were talking about it earlier, but you could look at that lawnmower, the lawn half mode and say, well, why, why did they do that? But you know the strategy and you know the data point that's being communicated that now it's six hours or more. You don't have to plan and you can be spontaneous like, ah, OK, you know, it's it's just a really great um, it's fun. It's fun. to Yeah. Very cool. Patricia Malone, this has been fantastic. I have so many takeaways to write up in the notes on this thing about gain framing, loss framing, the whole thing. Um, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with me. Well, thank you, Chris. It was great to, to chat with you today. Thank you.
You're welcome. Lots of good stuff in that episode. My favorite is to go out and look at the world and see how other companies outside of our industry are communicating. What can you take from that? I should mention that Patricia started out as a critical care nurse before she got into marketing, but she clearly has a knack for exploring new ideas. Hey, as always, if you like the podcast, please tell two colleagues and then send me an email. Let me know what you want more of. I'd love to hear your feedback, what you like, even what you don't like, uh, so I can help you out a little better. That email address again is chris at lifesciencemarketingradio.com. And I'll be back in two weeks to talk about saving money in your event budget. You don't want to miss it because there's a lot of money going out there. All right. Bye-bye.